Richard Dawkins makes the claim that God is a moral monster. We're going to answer that charge by reviewing part of the book by Paul Copan called Is God a Moral Monster? This is Matthew Garnett. Welcome to In Layman's Terms. Three key laws in Israel were distinct in the ancient Near East. They had been heeded by Bible-believing Southerners in the U.S. and Christian Europeans. Slavery would not have been an issue. Okay, so I think throughout really the series with uh, Andy Stanley, we mentioned this book called Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copan, and that's what we're going to take a look at this weekend, particularly going to look at the uh, slavery section, uh, which I found uh, eminently fascinating. He has three chapters on this, and he really just lays out the case. It's fa- fairly heady reading. It's a uh, it's a popular book, border borderlining on scholarly. In other words, if if you're not uh, uh, trained in in Old Testament, which I, I'm really not. I'm I'm a New Testament guy, and so this really took some concentration for me to to follow some of this stuff. Uh, but you can follow it. You can follow it, um, and and it makes complete sense. And it really delves you into the culture of the ancient Near East. Helps you understand what's going on there, and also helps you to understand how how a theocracy would have worked in that day and time. And I found the 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 pieces on slavery. Absolutely fascinating, uh, because compared to uh, the antebellum South, as as Copan's going to uh, point out, uh, really, had we followed the Bible on this, I mean, to the T, if we would have followed the laws for uh, Jewish quote-unquote slaves, which really end up being employers, we would have been in a lot better shape than we were before. And incidentally, speaking of Andy Stanley, this this is the kind of thing that pastors have to be teaching. Uh, and, and you know, if they're going to teach apologetics, if you're going to talk about how how to defend the faith, this this is how you do it. This is how you do it. You've got to learn this stuff. It's not easy. There's no just brushing the Old Testament away. Uh, I mean, really, the answer that Andy Stanley is giving to Richard Dawkins is, is oh well, yeah, God was a moral monster before, but now that Jesus has come, he's not a moral monster anymore. That that is a ridiculous, nonsensical argument that will not hold water, will not defend anybody's faith, especially children going to to. Uh, I, I mean, I I that is really maddening on so many levels. That Andy Stanley was saying that hey, if we want our children to be able to defend their faith, we got to tell them to throw out the Old Testament. <laughs> that that is. <laughs> That is going to destroy their faith quicker than anything because they're going to try to make that argument when they, when they go to college. They're going to say, well, my pastor back home said that God used to love the Jews more and he used to be a moral monster, but he's not anymore because Jesus rose from the dead type of argument that people are going to go, what? I mean, God used to be a moral monster, but now he's not. And he used to love one people group more than he loved another, but now he doesn't. That's essentially the argument that Andy Stanley was making. And men like, I mean, Sam Harris is not that great at debating. In fact, the, the way I found out about this book was uh, via debate that Sam Harris had with William Lane Craig, where L- William Lane Craig just shredded Sam Harris in this debate, just shredded him. They were talking about the foundations of morality. And again, I wouldn't have taken the tact in some ways that William, William Lane Craig did. I mean, far be it for me to criticize the vaunted William Lane Craig <laughs> on, on debate. 
but uh, but I would I would have granted Harris some points because I think I I could have suckered him into some moves. So I play chess, right? And when I play chess, I like to I like to I like to play the lame duck. I guess is is what uh, a guy that that used to teach me a little bit would call it where you, where you would like show a vulnerability and lure somebody into a trap. And then when they would take the bait, you would just obliterate them. There's a few museum chess you can do that with. And that's kind of how I like to debate. I will, I will kind of play lame duck like, Oh, well, let me go ahead and give you this ground. And then you go ahead and, and, and say, Oh, okay. So you, you, you take advantage of that. And then once you take advantage of that, then I have you. <laughs> so, so the bait I would offer a guy like Sam Harris is I would say, well, yeah, sure. You can. We can learn from the world. I mean, even my own scriptures teach this that that you can learn from the world of a about God, just by observing the world. You don't have to have revelation, um, and you can learn. Uh, you can learn morality from from studying science and nature, and we can make um, rational conclusions about morality based on those things. I, I will grant you that. And then once he steps into that trap, then what I'm going to spring on him is, but, but. It's going to, A, you remember this maybe from a few weeks back. A, it's going to take you a really long time to figure out this morality, sometimes maybe hundreds of years. Um, you know, we talked about that with, with the Weinsteins. Uh, and, and, well, Brett Weinstein and his wife still has her maiden name, Heather Haying, when they were on Joe Rogan's show and they were talking about, hey, we've, we have evolutionary, evolutionary biologists figured out that, that monogamous relation, lifelong relationships that bear children are really the most sexually fulfilling you know, we just found that I still find that laughable, and I, I like to bring it up because it's a, it's a case in point of, you know, at three four hundred years after the Enlightenment happened, happened, now they're just coming up with uh, the sixth commandment, okay, and all its implications, um, which we've had for, you know, centuries and millennia. We've had these commands right at our fingertips. Anyway, before I get too far into this, um, let me let me remind you to give to our Kenya Well Project. We're helping Kibos Hope Academy. We had Monica on, I want to say about three weeks ago. Gosh, was that long ago? Uh, we've been into that. Actually, her board and I are in talks. They may be like taking over in layman's terms, which might, might be okay because I'm looking at trying to get us um, uh, into, into a nonprofit situation. And it's not cheap and it's not easy. And so if we might be partnering on that. So that's pretty cool. Really cool developments happening there. But at the meantime, in the meantime, we can keep raising the money because really all this does is, is it goes, goes into a GoFundMe and it just sits there. It's not doing anything. They, they're just like holding this money. Um, so it's nobody's income. It doesn't really count for anything until we actually withdraw it and want to spend it. And when we do that, we hope, you know, we want to get it tax free and these sorts of things. So Anyway, in the meantime, $50. Again, I say this every week. I'm going to preach this every week until we get this well drilled. We could have this done tomorrow, people, easily. I mean, by the number of downloads we had last week. Um, if it's anything like that this week, it, those numbers, I mean, do the math. Do, do the math uh, at, you know, just at a, a modest figure of... 200 downloads, right? I mean, we're a small podcast, okay? I, I'm willing to admit that, no problem. But just take a teensy number, like 200 downloads, and multiply that times 50. That's a lot of money. So it doesn't take much. I mean, 50 bucks is nothing to us Americans. It's nothing. And and you can and you can give that. Now I know I want and I want to and I don't want to make anybody feel bad. It's nothing to me. I mean, I'm a truck driver that makes good money. 50 bucks is it's not that much money. I don't, and I don't want to make you feel guilty if you don't have that money. Uh, but for most of us, that's not a lot of money. 
and, and we could easily do it. And I know there's a lot of things that are competing for our money and attention and these sorts of things. Uh, but I really hope you will do this because we get this well drilled, then these children don't have to gather water while they're trying to go to school. I mean, could you imagine that if your child had to take an hour or two a day while they're at school, supposed to be learning, to have to go down to the local river to, to, to gather water? That would not be good times. We would not stand for that here in the United States, all right? We would we would take our children out of that school. Uh, but, but they have no choice there. They have no choice. And, and that's the thing is if we can get them this well then this is going to open up all kinds of doors. Not only is it going to save the children from have to, having to do that and spend time and energy, energy doing the, the, the task of gathering water, which is a laborious task. If you, I mean, I was raised on a farm. I know what this is like to go out and water the animals. It's uh, Carrying water around in five-gallon buckets is not good times uh, for any length of time. Um, so it's it's very laborious. But, but not only are we trying to save the children from that, but, but if we have this well there, then this is going to be attractive and available to the other people in the village, see? And 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 Monica and the people at Kibos Hope Academy are, are teaching Holy Scripture. They're teaching the gospel. They're catechizing these children. So, I mean, not only are we breaking, helping to break the cycle of poverty in Kenya, we are teaching them the gospel, and that's the most important thing. And so I just cannot think of something that you could so easily be a part of. Again, we're not asking for an ongoing commitment. We're not asking you to sponsor a child long-term. We're not asking any of that. We're just asking for a one-time donation of $50 um, toward this. And we can do it, folks, so easily. Again, we could have it done this week uh, because, again, we, we have more than 200 downloads. I don't like to talk about my numbers too much, but we do have significantly more than 200 downloads. Um, and so this could be easily done. Um, yeah, so just just please give to this. And also, don't forget that we have all of our art up. Uh, for Fred Ancho and Kenyan Christian Arts. That's working out beautifully. My wife is so excited about this. So we're going to be hitting some craft shows and whatnot here uh, in, in the next while. But that's there as well. Very easy to buy there. we got that all set up on PayPal. So you just go, you pick out what you want. It'll send us a message. We'll get the money. We pack it up. We ship it to you. Boom, done deal. Um, you get this beautiful uh, Kenyan art at a great price. Because again, you know the shipping from Kenya is very expensive unless you do it in bulk. And that's what we did. We bulk shipped a bunch of art here. And it's beautiful stuff, great for gifts. Um, you know, even for fathers, we've got crucifixes and all kinds of great stuff. So please check that out. Okay, so back to to this whole thing with uh, with you know is is got a moral monster. So right, if you're going to learn morality the hard way <laughs> through nature, it's going to take a really long time. Uh, for one thing, that's a. B. The morality that you learn is not going to be as complete as is learned from revelation the case i would make straight up to sam harris is something like sexual sexual morality we could we would debate that all day long i'm sure he and i are going to completely disagree he's more i mean even as what anyway he's way more libertine than i am on sexual ethics there's no doubt about it so all i'd have to do is bring up the idea of homosexuality and boom we'd be off to the races and i would say well um, I think what you're saying is immoral, uh, and I would I could give him reasons, scientific reasons, and then if that didn't convince him, I could bring up the idea of abortion, where all of the science is on my side, all of the reason is on my side, but yet um, there's something, whatever. I I just don't know how people argue. They are it's 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 an argument from emotion, is what that is. Now I I haven't heard Sam Harris talk about abortion, but I would be shocked to hear uh, that he opposes abortion. Uh, okay. So that he's pro-life. Um, uh, 
even though that is an intellectual, just an, on an intellectual level, is an untenable position. I mean, and obviously an untenable position biblically. Okay, so I could talk about the scope of morality. I could say, yes, you can, you can have a morality, but you can't have a morality uh, with the scope without divine revelation. And particularly divine revelation from Holy Scripture. Okay, that then then he might then then we might get into it. then see. I think I would have a lot of fun debating a guy like Sam Harris. I think you would have fun debating debating me. Unfortunately, we're probably never gonna he's never gonna hear me, and that's just gonna be. I mean, I'm a lowly truck driver, whatever. Uh, so so at any rate, that doesn't matter. So so those two things. One one it takes a really long time to figure these things out. We have to discover it through science. We have to, you know, make pro- we have to make have all these discussions. I mean, that's the that's my one gripe about the intellect, the quote unquote intellectual dark dark web is you have all these guys debating these things on there, um, but they never they hardly ever get to something. They hardly ever get to. I mean, one guy will present, yeah, well, this is where I'm coming from, and they will go, well, yeah, you know, I can definitely see where you're coming from. That makes sense to me. Uh, however, here's where I'm coming from, and oh, and like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me too. But I disagree because of all, and they have good discussions. It's it's a good back and forth a lot of the times, uh, and that's probably why I favor and a lot of people favor guys like Ben Shapiro, generally speaking, and Jordan Peterson, is because the guys they just land on something. I mean, that's what conservatives do. They say, "Boom! This this is the this is the deal, and this is what we should do. You shouldn't do this. You should do that." Okay, um, discussion over. <laughs> uh, so so th- there's that whole process, and then the scope thing we just talked about, and then on top of that, uh, the other thing I mentioned was authority, authority, and this is this is one thing that our country is founded on because uh, what the founder said is that uh, you know. Our rights as human beings, we are born with unalienable rights that were given by God. And because they were given by God, they therefore cannot, they are beyond contestation. You cannot question them. And the reason they did that was because they knew men could debate about these things. So, so again, take the Sam Harris thing and I, we're debating abortion. You know, he and I can debate that as men. And, and I said, well, from a reasonable, reasonable scientific perspective, I say abortion is wrong. And he could come right back and say, no, no, you know, for, for these different philosophical reasons or whatever, abortion should be allowed. And we could go back and forth on that sort of thing. Uh, but when we start talking about, uh, you know, rights to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, life, liberty, property, these sorts of things that the that the founders based that on, they wanted to to just silence any arguments against it. That's why you invoke God, <laughs> because as long as it's between human beings, you know who's one human being to say that they have authority over another. Who's who is Sam Harris to say that reason and science should rule over emotion, and you know, I I don't know the horror scope, however you want to put it, uh, and and the authority piece as we've talked about many times. Is the other reason. So I would I would lure Sam Harris or, or an atheist. I dream of debating Sam Harris. Um, lure that atheist into that argument. And, and let, let him come in and say, yeah, yeah, sure, you can do that. But but here's the problem. And then and then stuff would get real dicey for him right away. Uh, they'd be on some real unshaky ground. So uh, because I think I think I can I think I could hold. I'd be interested to see. Maybe I would get my butt kicked and not know what Sam Harris might say. But I think that's three pretty solid reasons to say why, um, why having revelation, you know, telling us what if you know what morality is is helpful, very helpful, and I would say indispensable. It's an argument I think Ben Shapiro is completely missing. By the way.
would like to talk to him about that too. Yeah, I just sit around, I listen to these guys, and I dream about it. Um, no, it's not going to happen. Point is, now you guys know about it. <laughs> so it's good that those are good arguments there. And so that that's really what why I wanted to bring uh, this book by by Copan in here. And we may may just spend a couple of weeks on it. It's lazy summer days, um, and you know we just may take our time with this a little bit. Uh, but the one we're going to do this week uh, covers slavery, and I think it's very good. I'm um, going to add some commentary here and there. I might add to what he has to say. I may try to explain some things. You know, bring, again, we are in layman's terms, and this is eh, clo- close to scholar- scholarly stuff. That doesn't mean the, the thing with scholarly is is mean that means you had to sit in class for a couple of years to kind of learn the lingo. That's that's really what it is. It's not like you know when we talk about it in layman's terms. All I'm saying, all I'm doing. Is I I had the privilege of sitting in the class a couple of years, and I have the privilege of sitting around listening to this stuff all day, and I've learned what certain what kind of packaging certain terms have, and so when people throw out a term just kind of flippantly like a scholar, like that everybody knows, like for instance, I was listening to a couple of guys talk, um, and especially in the realm of theology, when, well, and liberals don't even know that conservatives exist. That's just they're just they're out there. When, when, quote, liberals or people on the left, left-leaning people, um, socialists, you know, these sorts of things, socially libertine people, when they, when they talk about liberals, they're not talking about liberals as, you know, it's known in common parlance. When they talk about being liberal, what they're talking about is, is liberal democracy. They're talking about liberal capitalistic liberal democracy uh, as a governmental, as a political philosophy, and they're talking about capitalism as an economic philosophy. That's what classically the term liberal means. Okay, But if you didn't know that and you heard somebody say liberal and they're like, oh, this guy's speaking against liberalism. He must be a good guy. (laughs) No, he's not. When he's speaking against liberalism, what he's actually speaking against is, um, is... De- uh, democracy, as we know it, representative, you know, a representative de- republic, a, de- a democratic republic, as we know in the United States, and they're speaking against um, capitalism. That's what they're speaking against, in favor of of uh, Marxist, socialist, usually Leninist. Generally speaking, Lenin was the softer side of communism, after all, although not that soft. Uh, but but anyway, that they're they're usually Leninist Marxists, is what they are. If you hear somebody speaking against liberalism and academia, that's what they're talking about. All right, so there's just a little tidbit for you of me unpacking a term. But but if you didn't if you didn't sit in class and sit around and listen to this stuff all day, you wouldn't know that. So that's that's the kind of stuff we're going to do here. Otherwise, I'm going to let Copan kind of go on about this, let you get a taste for the book. Hopefully, you should go out and buy this book. This this should be a a resource for you. It's a very good reference book. Um, not something. Maybe necessarily you want to just sit down and read all the way through, but if you hear somebody say, "Oh, you know, the Bible, the Bible affirms slavery," then you could go, "No, it doesn't actually." Let me let me share this book with you. You know, you can talk about this with your friends. And so um, this is something I'm actually going to present to the teenagers, I think, too, um, because it's not it's not difficult to understand if you you know you can walk through it. And teenagers are smart enough to get it. Anyway, point is, um, hopefully you'll like it. Hopefully you'll go get it, and hopefully it'll be a tool in the toolbox to, uh, first of all, strengthen your faith. That's really my biggest belief in apologetics is I want you to be able to defend your faith against the attacks of the world, the devil, and especially your sinful nature. Uh, When it comes time, you're going to say, hey, you know what? 
devil. I've got a defense against that. You're not going to tempt me with that. Um, and then when your friends have questions, it's good to have these things in the toolbox. Anyway, no at the risk at uh, gilding the lily any further. Let's get going with Paul Copan's Is God a Moral Monster? Harriet Beecher Stowe, 1811-96, author of the powerful bestseller Uncle Tom's Cabin, wrote that Southern masters had absolute control over every facet of their slaves' lives. The legal power of the master amounts to an absolute despotism over body and soul, and there is no protection for the slave's life. Biblical Indentured Service a mistake critics make is associating servanthood in the Old Testament with antebellum, pre-war, slavery in the South, like the kind of scenario Douglas described. By contrast, Hebrew, debt, servanthood, could be compared to similar conditions in colonial America. Paying fares for passage to America was too costly for many individuals to afford, so they'd contract themselves out, working in the households, often in apprentice-like positions, until they paid back their debts. Okay, so th this is an argument that critics and skeptics of Christianity will make, is that the Bible t uh, affirms slavery. Um, and, and the argument that Copan is going to lay out here is, th is that the, the Scriptures don't affirm slavery. What they, what they affirm is, is actually a fair-wage, um, anti-poverty situation. And so, um, the problem with when people read the scriptures, w certain words are translated certain ways, and people don't bother to find out that perhaps when that word is translated that way, maybe that's maybe it's maybe it's a poor translation. Maybe we need to go back and and do some better translating. Uh, but the the word actually, you know, corresponds in a sense. Uh, but but at any rate, that's what that's what Copan's going to explain, is that chattel slavery in America, you know, and at that point in time, right, you know, really right after the Middle Ages, this kind of slavery was was really the darkest uh, time for people who were who were victims of, of slavery of this kind of slavery. This is this was the worst forms of slavery um, that the world had ever seen had ever seen. And you know, the and everybody was kind of participating in this, and and we know it best in the West because this is this is what we did. But it was going on all over the world. I, again, I I mentioned uh, Thomas Sowell's book on this. It, it, you know, he gives a good good history of, of slavery in one of his books, and I, I need to look that up. And maybe while we're listening to this, <laughs> I'll look it up and and give that give that to you. But anyway, that's that's what Copan's setting up here. So let's continue. One half to two thirds of white immigrants to Britain's colonies were indentured servants. Likewise, an Israelite strapped for shekels might become an indentured servant to pay off his debt to a boss or employer, Adon. Calling him a master is often way too strong a term, just as the term Ebed, servant, employee, typically shouldn't be translated slave. John Goldengate comments that. There is nothing inherently lowly or undignified about being an ebbet. Indeed, it is an honorable, dignified term. Even when the terms buy, sell, or acquire are used of servants' employees, they don't mean the person in question is just property. 
Think of a sports player today who gets traded to another team to which he belongs. Yes, teams have owners, but we're hardly talking about slavery here. Rather, these are formal contractual agreements, which is what we find in Old Testament servanthood-employee arrangements. One example of this contracted employer-employee relationship was Jacob's working for Laban for seven years so that he might marry his daughter Rachel. In Israel, becoming a voluntary servant was commonly a starvation prevention measure. A person had no collateral other than himself, which meant either service or death. While most people worked in the family business, servants would contribute to it as domestic workers. Contrary to the critics, this servanthood wasn't much different experientially from paid employment in a cash economy like ours. Okay, so so don't miss that. Uh, I mean, essentially, what you had in uh, in ancient Near Eastern Near Eastern Jewish theocracy were situations where now it's it, the way uh, Copan is going to kind of set this out is that he makes it sound like. That it was, it was. I don't know if it was the exception, but it, but unless you were a slave, you you were an entrepreneur. So in other words, um, the people that owned things and that were the you know owned the farms, had a family business, this sort of thing, and they they owned their own business, and then they had servants who didn't own their own business. Sounds a lot like the situation I live in today. I mean. By their standards, me personally, I would be called a slave because I am a truck driver who works for uh, an owner of a trucking company. And he's a good owner. That's why I work for his trucking company. And he treats me well. And the way he treats me well is I have good equipment. We have good uh, compensation, these sorts of things. Um, it, was a, it was a little different then. It was a little different back then. I mean, obviously not a lot different because um, instead of, so it'd be like me signing on to work for um, a trucking company for at least seven years with with the idea that he would give me um, room and board and pay off all my debts. Because presumably, I mean, the only way that I can think of that you would have debts, and, and Copan really doesn't address this, uh, but but these people were were in debt somehow. And the only way you could get in debt in that culture was uh, to have owned a farm or something like owned a family business and something bad happened, like all your sheep died of a, of a blight or something like that, or all your crops got, got hailed out or something of that nature. Um, you had a, you, you know, or there was a drought and that, that, put, that ended up put, putting you in debt. And so then, therefore, you had to, to hire yourself out in order to, to continue to live. And the way the Jewish law was set up was, that, that 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 you know they wouldn't just let those people kind of die off or or you know whatever starve to death, um, that that they would be able to go and work uh, f- for somebody else who didn't you know who uh, you hadn't had that bad fortune but still had their business and you could work for them. See, so so at any rate, um, you know, pretty interesting situation, really. Uh, you know, if you, if you really understand what's going on here, according to Copan. You know, you, you've got basically a situation. In other words, if you were to be teletransported back to the to the Hebrew culture at that time, you would be what would be called a slave. Uh, and and what's funny is some of the more, um, you know, some of the neo-Marxists actually call the capitalist system of labor uh, slavery. Um, yeah, just not not seeing that at all. But um, 
But if that's what you want to call it, I, I, I suppose so. At any rate, let's uh, let's continue on here. Family land would have to be mortgaged until the year of Jubilee every 50 years, see Leviticus 25, which actually spells out successive stages of destitution in Israel in verses 25 through 54. In other words, this servanthood wasn't imposed by an outsider, as it was by slave traders and plantation owners in the antebellum south. What's more, this indentured service wasn't unusual in other parts of the ancient Near East either, though conditions were often worse. And later on, when inhabitants of Judah took back Hebrew servants they had released, God condemned them for violating the law of Moses and for forgetting that they were once slaves in Egypt whom God had delivered. God told the Judahites that because of their actions, they were going to be exiled in the land of their enemies. Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 12 through 22. Once a servant was released, he was free to pursue his own livelihood without any further obligations within that household. He returned to being a full participant in Israelite society. Becoming an indentured servant meant a slight step down the social ladder, but a person could step back up as a full citizen once the debt was paid or he was released in the seventh year or in the fiftieth year. Nevertheless, the law was concerned that indentured servants were to be treated as a man hired from year to year and were not to be ruled over ruthlessly. Leviticus chapter 25 verses 53 and 54 NIV. In fact, servants in Israel weren't cut off from society during their servitude, but were thoroughly embedded within it. As I mentioned earlier, Israel's forgiveness of debts every seven years was fixed, and thus intended to be far more consistent than that of Israel's ancient Near Eastern counterparts, for whom debt release, if it occurred, was typically much more sporadic. So unavoidable lifelong servanthood was prohibited unless someone loved the head of the household and wanted to attach himself to him. Exodus chapter 21 verse 5. Servants, even if they hadn't paid off their debts, were granted release every seventh year with all debts forgiven. Deuteronomy chapter 15. As we'll see, their legal status was unique and a dramatic improvement over law codes in the ancient Near East. One scholar writes that Hebrew has no vocabulary of slavery, only of servanthood. An Israelite servant's guaranteed release within seven years was a control or regulation to prevent the abuse and institutionalizing of such positions. The release here reminded the Israelites that poverty-induced servanthood wasn't an ideal social arrangement. By the way, um, it's interesting that he, that he cites that scholar that says slavery wasn't in the language of Hebrew. And I wonder why we translate our English Bibles like that. It's interesting. Um, I mean, it, just completely speculating here, but it may be because of uh, uh, our history in America and in the West that that we've translated those things that way. And maybe it's time we change that. Just a thought. Um, we talk about, you know, we, we've talked about racism here before and how, you know, how, how can we take steps to solve it? Well, maybe it's time to change the language in our Bible um, to, to, to demonstrate clearly that, like Copan is, is pointing out here, that this is that slavery is completely foreign uh, to to the Scriptures, and, and he demonstrates this in the New Testament as well. See, so but as far as the Old Testament goes, 
um, there, there is no, I mean, he's demonstrating this clearly. There's no warrant uh, for, for anybody drawing on the Old Testament to say that, well, this is what the Old Testament taught. And so therefore, you know, the, the, uh, the, the uh, 18th and 19th century America uh, justified their slavery uh, using Holy Scripture in this way. It's just not there. Simply not there. And perhaps a holdover from that is how we continue to translate our English Bibles. And maybe it's time we change them. On the other hand, servanthood existed in Israel precisely because poverty existed. No poverty, no servants in Israel. And if servants lived in Israel, it was a voluntary, poverty-induced arrangement and not forced. Means to help the poor. In the ancient world and beyond, chattel or property slavery had three characteristics. One, a slave was property. Two, the slave owner's rights over the slave's person and work were total and absolute. Three, the slave was stripped of his identity, racial, familial, social, marital. By the way, this is uh, something that Copan points out throughout this book is that Let's just, if, if I was in a debate with, again, with Sam Harris, I might grant him, again, my, my old move of, you know, I'll show weakness and then I'll entrap you. <laughs> um, let's, let's just say for the sake of argument, there is no God and the, and the, the entire uh, Old Testament was made up by humans. Would the Old Testament laws, the Old Testament theocracy, represent a step forward in morality in that time, or a step backward. There is no question, absolutely no question whatsoever, that it would represent a step forward in morality. This is a point Copan brings out over and over and over again. And so, again, if I was debating a Sam Harris, this would be something I'd just say, okay, let's just pretend there's no God. Is the Old Testament in that time, in that time, compared to other ancient Near Eastern practices, is it a step forward in morality? Or is it a step backward? There's there's no way he could argue it was it was a step backward at all. It's a step forward. And, and Copan is showing it's actually a step forward from the chattel slavery that uh, that was experienced in the West. And, and Copan makes that point. From what we've seen, this doesn't describe the Hebrew servant at all. Nor does it, as we'll see in the next chapter, fit the non-Israelite slave in Israel. Israel's servant laws were concerned about controlling or regulating, not idealizing an inferior work arrangement. Israelite servitude was induced by poverty, was entered into voluntarily, and was far from optimal. The intent of these laws was to combat potential abuses, not to institutionalize servitude. When we compare Israel's servant system with the ancient Near East in general, what we have is a fairly tame and in many ways, very attractive arrangement for impoverished Israelites. The servant laws aim to benefit and protect the poor, that is, those most likely to enter indentured service. Servanthood was voluntary. A person who, for whatever reason, doesn't have any land, sells himself. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 39, 47. Compare Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 12. Someone might also sell a family member as an indentured servant in another's household to work until a debt is paid off. Once a person was freed from his servant obligations, 
he had the status of full and unencumbered citizenship. Old Testament legislation sought to prevent voluntary debt servitude. A good deal of Mosaic legislation was given to protect the poor from even temporary indentured service. The poor were given opportunities to glean the edges of fields or pick lingering fruit on trees after their fellow Israelites harvested the land. Leviticus chapter 19 verses 9 and 10, chapter 23 verse 22, Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 20 and 21. Also, fellow Israelites were commanded to lend freely to the poor, Deuteronomy chapter 15 verses 7 and 8, who weren't to be charged interest, Exodus chapter 22 verse 25, Leviticus chapter 25 verses 36 and 37. And if the poor couldn't afford high-end sacrificial animals, they could sacrifice smaller, less expensive ones, Leviticus chapter 5 verses 7 and 11. Also, debts were to be automatically canceled every seven years. In fact, when debt servants were released, they were to be generously provided for without a grudging heart. Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 10 NIV. The bottom line, God didn't want there to be any poverty in Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 4. Therefore, servant laws existed to help the poor, not harm them or keep them down. The ultimate goal, no poverty, no servanthood. Deuteronomy chapter 15 verses 1 through 18. At the end of every seven years you shall grant a remission of debts. This is the manner of remission. Every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother, because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. From a foreigner you may exact it, which was typically for business transactions, as we'll see later. But your hand shall release whatever of yours is with your brother. However, there will be no poor among you, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess. If only you listen obediently to the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all this commandment which I am commanding you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you, and you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow, and you will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. Okay, by the way, let me just add this here. Um, the Old Testament law code under the theocracy um, was simplistic compared to the laws we have in the United States. I mean, we have we have lawyers in the United States. They had lawyers um, under the Jewish theocracy. I mean, we, we, we see this uh, in the New Testament when, when certain lawyers come up to Jesus to ask him questions about the law, right? These are experts in the law. This is what Copan has dedica obviously dedicated his life to, was, is being a lawyer who understands Jewish law in the context of, the, of ancient Near Eastern culture. This is no easy task. It's very complicated. It's way more complicated than pulling a verse out of context and, and saying, look, you know, like, like we heard Andy Stanley doing, you know, talking about how the woman who grabs the man's genitals uh, of two men that are fighting is supposed to have her hand cut off. Like Copan explains this one as well in another chapter. Uh, but he's an expert on the law. He's a Jewish lawyer. He knows the law. He knows how it works. He knows how it fits. He's studied. He understands it. Um, and, it's, it's, and it's not something that we can easily grasp. It is clear. The Jewish law is clear. But it's not clear to us as, as you know, 21st century 
Westerners. It's just not. You have to understand the context, the culture, what's going on here, how this all worked out, how it all fits together. You have to you have to know this intimately. I mean, putting this all together is a laborious task. Notice how he's going from verse to verse and, and chapter to chapter and putting this all together and making sense of it. See, this is what lawyers do. They know the law. They're able to just say, okay, well, this, this law says this here, this says this is here, this is how it all makes sense. They put it all together and they show you how it's, it's a just system and not just some arbitrary, weird, whatever, as some of the new atheists interpret it, see? And so um, so that's the benefit we're getting from Copan here, is we're listening to basically a Jewish lawyer explain the law to us. It's very helpful, uh, because most of us just don't have that, that kind of, uh, of learning. It, it would be like if somebody wrote a book and said, um, well, let me explain, I don't know, um, the the uh, the food regulations in the United States to you and you know kind of how they all make sense and how they all fit together and why why you might think that well this is a very weird law but this is why it was it was it was put in place now some of some of our laws <laughs> that's the thing is what's interesting about uh, Copan's explanation of the entire uh, Mosaic law the old covenant the the Old Testament um, he makes complete sense out of it. We, we there's a lot of laws that we have in our country we can't make a lick of sense out of um, because they have various motivations behind them. There's there's none of that here. It's way more simplistic than that. So at any rate, we're getting we're getting a good explanation from an expert on Jewish law, and, and he's making complete sense of it. He's showing how it all fits together and why it is it is just and right, and even more just and right. Uh, than our own that our own history here in the United States ha- has shown in the past. If you just glanced over the Deuteronomy 15 text and didn't catch its significance, go back and really read it. The overriding revolutionary goal expressed in this text is to totally eradicate debt servanthood in the land. There will be no poor, and therefore no debt servanthood, among you. Verse 4. Being a realist, however, God was aware that inferior conditions would exist and that poverty and thus servanthood would continue in the land. Verse 11. Even so, this undesirable situation was to be battled rather than institutionalized. In keeping with this eradicate poverty, eradicate servitude spirit, a servant's release was to be accompanied with generous provisions and a gracious spirit. The master was to have no wicked thought toward his servant. Instead, he was to generously load him up with provisions, verses 13 and 14. The motivating reason for this kindness and goodwill was that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today, verse 15. Even if poverty, and therefore servitude, couldn't be eradicated, Israel was to strive toward this goal. The Dignity of Debt Servants Rather than relegating treatment of servants, slaves, to the end of the law code, commonly done in other ancient Near Eastern law codes, Israel's law code put the matter front and center in Exodus chapter 21. For the first time in the ancient Near East, legislation required treating servants as persons, not property. In other ancient Near Eastern cultures, it was the king who was the image of their god on earth, and certainly not the slave. 
by contrast, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, affirms that all human beings are God's image bearers. This doctrine serves as the basis for affirming the dignity and rights of every human. Likewise, Job chapter 31, verses 13 through 15, clearly reveals the inescapable humanity and thus equality of master and servant alike. If I have denied justice to my men servants and maid servants when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? NIV. That's a <clears throat> wow a, a passage I'd forgotten. Read Job many times. Very interesting that Job points out here that had he not treated his manservant or maidservant with dignity and equality and fairness and justice that God would hold him to, uh, hold him to account. This is revolutionary stuff um, in, the, in the ancient Near East. So uh, really kudos to Copan. I mean, this is the thing. The, the guy knows his Old Testament intimately. I mean, I've read it many times, but he's obviously, he's sat there and puzzled this all together and, and, and draws on something like Job to demonstrate how how revolutionary these ideas were and how you know and how we can look to it and, and and take note of it and should take note of it and realize that the notion of treating somebody as inferior as as a slave uh, to say that that another race um, is is below us or, or anything of that nature in order that we may enslave them to enrich ourselves is is nowhere found in the Old Testament it's simply not and that and that those couple of verses in the book of Job demonstrate that clearly. Servants, slaves, in Israel, unlike their ancient Near Eastern contemporaries, were given radical, unprecedented legal human rights, even if not equaling that of free persons who could, if unfortunate circumstances prevailed, find themselves needing to place themselves into indentured servitude. As the Anchor Bible Dictionary's essay on slavery observes, we have in the Bible the first appeals in world literature to treat slaves as human beings for their own sake and not just in the interests of their masters. By comparison, the idea of a slave as exclusively the object of rights and as a person outside regular society was apparently alien to the laws of the rest of the ancient Near East where slaves were forcibly branded or tattooed for identification. Contrast this with Exodus chapter 21, verses 5 and 6. Indeed, in contrast to many ancient doctrines, the Hebrew law was relatively mild towards the slaves and recognized them as human beings subject to defense from intolerable acts, although not to the same extent as free persons. As we'll see, the protection of runaway slaves who fled to Israel was strikingly different from the slave laws in surrounding ancient Near Eastern cultures, and this was due to Israel's own history as slaves in Egypt. In the rest of this chapter, we'll see not only how three key laws in Israel were distinct in the ancient Near East, but also how, if they had been heeded by Bible-believing Southerners in the U.S. and Christian Europeans, slavery would not have been an issue. Let's look at these more closely release of injured servants. 
Another marked improvement of Israel's laws over other ancient Near Eastern law codes is the release of injured servants. Exodus chapter 21, verses 26 and 27. When an employer, master, accidentally gouged out the eye or knocked out the tooth of his male or female servant employee, he or she was to go free. No bodily abuse of servants was permitted. And, as we'll discuss in the next chapter, if an employer's discipline resulted in the immediate death of his servant, that employer, master, himself was to be put to death. Exodus chapter 21, verse 20. Note that the word for punished is very strong, always connoting the death penalty. Incidentally, until recently, I'd say in the past 50 years, um, the, mur the murder of slaves or minorities uh, was very seldom enforced in America. It, it by law, you couldn't kill somebody who was black in the South, but this sort of thing happened all the time. We know about this. So, again, think what I'm trying to get you to think about is how we, you know, we say we've made progress. I mean, this is kind of what Steven Pinker's latest book is about, if you know Steven Pinker, that, that we've made moral progress. Well, yeah. Maybe in the past few decades, we, we've kind of come come around to some things, uh, but but in antebellum America, uh, killing a slave was was not a crime, and in the Bible it was, and all the while, these people claimed to uh, be following the Bible, and as as Copan has already pointed out. Um, if these people really knew their Bible and understood it, they would have known that they had no support whatsoever for what they were doing with slaves here in America. As an aside, keep in mind that many, perhaps most, servants were young people who were parceled out by destitute parents to more prosperous families who would feed, clothe, and shelter them. Other adults served in loco parentis, in the place of parents, which typically included discipline of servant children. As Proverbs chapter 29 verse 19 puts it, a servant cannot be corrected by mere words, though he understands he will not respond, NIV. The downside of this was that sometimes the head of the household would likely overdo the punishment, possibly resulting in injury. Anti-kidnapping laws Another unique feature of the Mosaic Law is its condemnation of kidnapping a person to sell as a slave, an act punishable by death. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. Exodus chapter 21 verse 16. If a man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen of the sons of Israel, and he deals with him violently or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 7. Note the prohibition of kidnapping in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10. This ban against kidnapping is a point lost on, or ignored by, those who compare servanthood in Israel with slavery in the antebellum south, let alone the ancient Near East. 
helping runaway slaves. Up to this point, we've primarily referred to Israelite servants, not foreign ones. But this particular law reveals just how different Israel's laws were from the antebellum South, despite the Confederacy's claims of following the Bible faithfully. Also, this fugitive harboring law would have applied to Israelite servants who left harsh employers for refuge. Another unique feature in Israel's slave laws was this. Israel was commanded to offer safe harbor to foreign runaway slaves. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verses 15 and 16. The southern states' fugitive slave law legally required runaway slaves to be returned to their masters. This sounds more like the Code of Hammurabi than the Bible. Hammurabi even demanded the death penalty for those helping runaway slaves. In other less severe cases, in the Lipit, Ishtar, Eshnuna, and Hittite laws, fines were enacted for sheltering fugitive slaves. Some claim that this was an improvement. Well, sort of. In these improved scenarios, the slave was still merely property, and ancient Near Eastern extradition arrangements still required that a slave be returned to his master. Okay, so a couple of things here. Uh, remember how we talked about one of the weaknesses of the atheist moral argument of drawing morality from merely material principles, humanistic principles, that it takes time? Um, the Enlightenment really, I mean, during the Enlightenment, slavery was still going on. wasn't wasn't abolished, and really wasn't pushed towards necessarily. Um, had those people understood what Copan understands here about slavery um, in the Bible, we could have avoided the whole situation. I and mean, that's exactly what he points out. It's exactly what he points out. And so when God reveals his will and his ways in Holy Scripture, if we don't delve in and understand those things intimately, then then we're missing something. If we, if we rely on our own understanding on these things, then, then we're missing something. And so... The, and, and then, you know, the other thing I would add to this is that, you know, while the new atheists may call the ancient Near East barbaric, it, again, as Copan has pointed out again and again and again, the way we treated slaves in America and in the West in the times during the Enlightenment, this is during the Enlightenment, friends was so much more brutal, cruel, and unusual than had ever probably been seen in world history. It's astonishing. And had these people known their Bibles, it would have been different. And that's my charge to us here as we close this week, is that when we don't know our Bibles and we're not willing to stay study them and study them in depth in their cultural context then really horrific and terrible things happen temporal things happen that are terrible and horrific 
Not to mention the eternal aspect of all of this. So, we've talked about Andy Stanley not knowing his Bible, but being concerned with perhaps something else in the past several weeks. Uh, friends, if this is not a charge to know your Bible and know it intimately and ask questions of it and to seek answers, that's the thing is, this this is what I would challenge you with this week is read and study your Bible and ask questions of it. Say, hey, you know what? That sounds really bizarre or unfair or barbaric. And then go out and try to find answers. Instead of saying, well, that's just totally, you know, ridiculous, unrational, barbaric, and just blow it off like the new atheists do who claim to be, you know, our intellectual betters. Instead of doing that, go out and look for some answers like Copan gives us here because there are answers to it. All right. Does it make sense? Took me a long time to get to this point. (laughs) Um, I mean, in my life. And just understanding that there are answers to these things. There really are. Um, uh, Aside from from abandoning Holy Scripture altogether. Anyway, got to go for this week. Oh, forgot to mention KNNA The Cross. Please listen listen to us there on Pirate Christian Radio as well. Got to get us there. Um, And... Give your $50 to the Can You Well Project. We could have this done next week. Have it done. Drilling a well. Do amazing things there. Um, also check out our art at uh, laymanstermsradio.org on the, on the Kenyan Art tab. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel. It brings salvation to those who believe. Hey, preacher man. Did last week on your summer vacation, what you saw, where you